0: In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Seerah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Go to seerahintensive.com to register or for more info. Bismillah, <laughs> walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi wasallam, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about some of the events that unfolded in the months following the uh, battle of Khaybar, the conquest of Khaybar. And as we talked about the conquest of Khaybar, it occurred in the early part of the seventh year of Hijrah. The seventh year of the Prophet's residence in the city of Medina. So the scholars of Sirah they mentioned that after Khaybar concluded, the Prophet ﷺ of course returned back to the city of Medina, where he then remained for the duration of the months of Rabiul Awal, Rabiul Aakhir, Jamadiul Awal, Jamadiul Rajab, Sha'ban, Ramadan, Shawwal, and then in the month of Zulqā'ida. So about six, seven months after the battle of Khaybar, the Prophet ﷺ gathered the Sahaba together and he said that we are going to be embarking on the journey of Umrah. We're going to be performing Umrah. So we need to go back very quickly and very briefly to exactly a year before the moment where we're at. The month of Dhul Qa'dah in the seventh year of Hijrah. So if you go a year back, which is the sixth year of Hijrah, the same time of the year, the month of Dhul-Qa'ada, the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba anhum had set out from the city of Medina in order to go and perform Umrah. They were going to perform Umrah. They were in ihram, they had animals for the sake of sacrifice, they did not look like an army by any stretch of the imagination. Of course, people had their own individual weapons with them, but that's because that was just an essential item that you traveled with at that particular time. But it was not an army. It didn't have an artillery and, um, you know, um, uh, an extensive cavalry and things of that nature. It was not an army. They were going for Umrah, and we went through this in a lot of detail. Very famously, they were, of course, stopped by the Quraysh. At that point in time, the Quraysh said, we cannot let you enter into Makkah because they were still at odds with one another. And it was at that particular time that the treaty of Hudaybiyyah, Sulhul hudaybiyah the treaty of Hudaybiyah was enacted at that time. And part of the treaty of Hudaybiyah was that you will come back a year later because one of the terms the Prophet ﷺ put on the table was, we came here to perform Umrah, we are in the state of Ihram. Alright, we are in the state of ihram, we are coming to visit the Kaaba, the house of Allah. So, we need to discharge this responsibility of the umrah in order to be able to come out from the state of ihram. And they ended up responding by saying that we understand your predicament, however, we cannot allow you to come this time around. It will be a show of weakness on our part. And so, they ended up rejecting the proposal of the Prophet ﷺ to be able to go and perform Umrah. And they said that you are, you can come back the following year, stay no longer than three days, and a few other conditions were there that you will come, you will perform Umrah. You will not have once again extensive, you know, weaponry and artillery with you. People have their own individual, you know, swords or weapons that they carry on themselves when they travel. That's fine. But those swords must also be sheathed, right? They must also be, you know, kind of holstered, as we would say for a gun. The gun must be holstered, all right? So your weapon must be put away, and you can come for three days, perform umrah at that time, and then it'll be all right. So now that it was a year later, the Prophet ﷺ told the sahaba, let's go, we're going to go and perform umrah. And so the, the fiqh that I had explained at that time was that this is, الهدي, That Allah speaks about this in the Qur'an, that if you are going for like hajr, umrah, you are in a state of ihram, and you are prevented, you are blocked from going and performing it, then what is to be done at that time is, if you have an animal for sacrifice, you offer the animal for sacrifice, you shave your head, you come out from the state of ihram, and then at that point, um, you are out of the state of ihram, but now making up that hajj umrah, doing a, a subsequent or make up, a follow up, hajj umrah is mandatory upon you. Whenever the opportunity may present itself if the opportunity presents itself. So now of course the opportunity was here, so this was kind of the follow-up or make-up Umrah of the Prophet ﷺ and the companions رضي عنهم, and that's why they were going. So this particular Umrah for this very reason has three different names that it's been referred to. Some scholars refer to it, some books of history have referred to it as Umratul Qadā. Umrah al qadah The word al qadah in the Arabic language means like a follow up or a makeup of a missed or a violated, dis- disrupted act of worship. Okay, a missed or a makeup of a disrupted act of worship. The example for that is if, for instance, somebody misses the time of Maghrib, they miss the Maghrib prayer. Then once the time for Isha comes in and they are now praying their maghrib before they pray their Isha, that is known as Al-Qadah. Right? They miss the prayer and they're making up for it. Similarly, that's if you miss an act of worship. For a disrupted act of worship, it is also similar. How so? If somebody is fasting, if somebody is fasting and Let's say that while they are fasting, it's a month of Ramadan, it's a month of Ramadan so it's a mandatory fast. So that the ruling is universal across the board. And while they're fasting in the month of Ramadan, which is mandatory, obligatory, uh, for some reason or another their fast becomes violated. Maybe they start traveling, they're traveling in the middle of the day and as they're traveling they decide to take the dispensation of traveling and they eat or drink something Right? And therefore, they did not finish their fast. That's a disrupted act of worship. Another example of that could be somebody, um, you know, was fasting, and then in the middle of the day while they're fasting, again in the month of Ramadan, they start to feel ill, they start to feel sick. And due to whatever advice that they're given by, you know, a doctor or medical professional that you should go ahead and maybe drink some water or take some medication, whatever the case may be, and they end up leaving the fast in the middle. This is a disrupted act of worship. It was not completed. So what they will have to do now is they will have to do it again. They will have to follow up. Alright, so that's what al qada refers to. So Umratul Qadah, it is the makeup or follow up Umrah of the Prophet ﷺ. Another name for this is Umratul qisas al Qisas. Al Qisas in the Arabic language, again, um, in, in Islamic terminology, like in fiqh, it has a more specific meaning. It is basically retribution, legal retribution, where the court grants someone retribution for something wrong that was done to them. But linguistically speaking, Qisas means when something's taken from you, the replacement for that. So because the Prophet and the Sahaba were going for Umrah, and they were in ihram, and they were prevented, that Umrah was taken away from them by the Meccans, this was now making up for that missed opportunity. This Umrah was being given to them for that one Umrah that was taken away from them. And that's why it's called the Umratul Qisas as well. alama in uh, his book, he basically prefers this particular name. And Ibn Kathir taala, also makes a reference to uh, the ayah of the Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Haramu Harami Wal That a sacred month, in exchange in exchange for a sacred month, and these sacred things must be made up for. Okay. And lastly and finally, some have also referred to it as Umratul Qadiyya. Umrah al-Qadiyya. Qadiyya means a decree or a decision. A decree or a decision because this Umrah was contractually agreed to. This Umrah was contractually agreed to in the negotiations between the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, and the Quraysh. Right, when they sat down for the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, this Umrah was agreed to, therefore it's called Umratul qadiyah the Umrah that was decreed, that was decided, that was contractually uh, agreed to. So those are a few different names of this particular Umrah. The next thing I'll mention is that the Prophet ﷺ, just a little side note, but it's beneficial to know this, the Prophet ﷺ performed four Umrahs in his life. He performed what's referred to as four Umrahs in his life. What that means is, first and foremost, the first of those was the Umrah. It's basically referred to as an Umrah, but that's the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So the actual Umrah was not performed. But the reason why that's counted as one of the Umrahs of the Prophet is that if somebody makes the intention for Umrah, Labaik Allahumma Labaik, okay, and puts on their ihram and proceeds towards Mecca to perform their Umrah, and then they are prevented, they are blocked by someone else, or by something else, it could be a natural disaster, it could be a flood, it could be war, it could be an enemy, like in this instance. When they are prevented, and they are blocked, and that is outside of their control, they still get the reward of their Umrah. They still get the reward of their Umrah, because it was not, it's not negligence on their part that they didn't perform the Umrah. Right? Yes, they make up, they follow up the act, but that's for the performance of the actual deed, but it does not take away from their reward. So it's almost, So the way to understand this is, the Prophet and the Sahaba, when they went on Hudaybiyyah, that, tri- that trip, and they were going to perform Umrah, but they were blocked and the treaty of Hudaybiyyah happens, a year later they go and they perform Umrah, they get the reward of two Umrahs, not just one. right? Because it's not, it's, it was something that was out of their hands, out of their control. They made their best effort possible. And in that is a very profound lesson. We don't control the end of things. We don't know how things are going to turn out. All we can do, all we're obligated to do, is to make the best effort possible. To be sincere, to be diligent, to be mindful, to be vigilant, and do the best that we can. And put our best foot forward and our best effort forward. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts. And regardless of what ends up happening actually, logistically, physically, our reward will be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right, as Allah mentions in the Qur'an, that person's reward is with God. And Allah has taken, Allah Allah has taken responsibility of rewarding that person, of taking care of that person. So in that is great comfort and solace, because we all deal with that sometimes. You make a very remarkable intention, you know, I'm going to memorize uh, a juz of the Qur'an this year. You make that intention, working professional, maybe you got kids, you have a family, your life is very busy, full-time student, going to college, working part-time, doing all of these things. Your life is very busy. But in spite of all of that, in the midst of all of that, you say, you know what? That does not remove me from my relationship with the Qur'an. I'm going to memorize a juz. And you make the best effort that you can. You spare every free minute that you can right, on Sunday instead of watching the football game, you're sitting and you're memorizing Qur'an. Driving to work and driving back home or to walking around campus at school, you're listening to the Qur'an instead of something else. You're doing the best effort that you can. And when the year comes and goes and you haven't finished the juz of the Qur'an, but you feel sincerely and honestly you made your best effort possible, know your reward is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And find comfort in solace in that. Because at that moment, a lot of times people feel very defeated. They feel very demoralized. I did everything I could. Brother, what do I do? This doesn't work. You have to find comfort and solace in these examples from the life of the Prophet Wasallam. Think about how the Prophet and the Sahaba must have felt. He longs to see the Kaaba. It's been six years I haven't seen Baytullah. And they put on Ihram, and they have animals for sacrifice. Bake And they're marching from Medina all the way to Mecca. And then they're stopped. But they know that their reward is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright, so this is so I was talking about the four umrahs of the Prophet. ﷺ. The first is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So while that wasn't an actual performance of an umrah, it's counted as one of the umras of the Prophet. ﷺ. Number two is this umrah, the follow up umrah of the Prophet ﷺ, Umratul Qada. The third umrah is referred to as Umratul Ji'irrah. Al-ji'irrana. The reason why it's called that, there is a place outside of Mecca, excuse me, Mecca that's called Al-ji'irrana. And that place is between Ta'if and Mecca that places between Mecca and Ta'if, and it is the Miqat, which means it is that boundary from where people coming from the direction of Ta'if, they have to put their ihram on before they cross that point. And the Prophet ﷺ performed in Umrah where he put his ihram on at the place of Ji'irrana after the conquest of Mecca. After the conquest of Mecca, which we're gonna be talking about in a lot of detail, but basically, in the eighth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ, the conquest of Mecca, Fathu Mecca, the opening of Mecca occurred. After that, there was the battle of Hunain and the battle of Ta'if, the siege, the, 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 the siege of Ta'if. The battle of Hunain and the siege of Ta'if. After they were coming back from there, from Ta'if, then they stopped at the place of Ji'irrana because they had not performed Umrah coming into Mecca because they arrived under the pretext of potential battle and war. But now that there was peace and safety, and Makkah was secure, the Prophet said, we have to still perform our Umrah for coming to Mecca. So then they did ihram from Jarrana and they performed Umrah, that was the third. And the fourth one was the Umrah, the Prophet performed before Hajjatul Wida. Because the Prophet taught us, if you are not a local resident, if you are not a resident of the city of Mecca, if you are not local to Mecca, and you come in to perform Hajj from outside, like you go from you know, here, from the States for example, when you go to perform Hajj as an, as, a, as an expression of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for allowing you to perform Hajj and travel and go there to Mecca for Hajj, you are supposed to perform an Umrah before the Hajj. So you do both an Umrah and a Hajj on the same journey. So the Prophet ﷺ, he performed an Umrah before Hajj, Hajjatul Wida, and that was the fourth and the final Umrah of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is the second one that we're talking about here. So they go ahead and they proceed on um, towards uh, the city of Mecca, And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala and others mentioned that this was a. F- this was a fulfillment of the dream of the Prophet وسلم, that Allah refers to in Suratul Fath, laqad rasulahu haq That without a doubt God has fulfilled uh, or has fulfilled the messenger sallallahu his dream and brought it to fruition. Allah has fulfilled the dream of the Prophet and brought it to fruition. And that is that you shall enter the masjid, the sacred house of God, the Kaaba, the Masjid al-Haram, inshaAllah, Aminim, safe and sound. And you will be shaving your head or cutting your hair, and you will not fear any attack from your enemy. So Ibn Kathir and many other historians and scholars are of the opinion that this was referring to umratul al-Qadha, that you even though at Hudaybiyah you felt like you were prevented from performing the Umrah, inshallah, this is the dream that God will fulfill of yours, where a year later you will enter the Kaaba and inshallah perform this great noble act of worship. And similarly, the Umrah ibn Khattab anhu, the Prophet had sent to him, when Umrah anhu was very frustrated at the treaty of Hudaybiyah, that why are we... Um, giving in to these people, he said, Alamtakuntu hadithuna anna wa bihi." oh Messenger of God, did you not tell us that we would go to the Kaaba and we would perform Tawaf? bala," He said, Of course yeah Umar, I did tell you that. thank you. he said, but did I tell you that you would be doing it this exact year? He said, No, he said, No, messenger of God. He said, Fa aatihi wa mutawifun He said, You will go to the Kaaba and you will perform tawaf, insha'Allah. Just keep the faith and keep the hope. And so, when they came this particular year to perform uh, the tawaf, the scholars mentioned that the vast overwhelming majority of the Sahaba, radiallahu ta'ala, they accompanied the Prophet. The Prophet, in his stead, in his absence, he appointed Uwayf ibn al-Adbat, a du'ali, to be in charge of the city of Mecca in his absence. So he appointed away for radiallahu تعالى عنه, to watch over Medina in his absence, and then they proceeded on. And the narrations mentioned that as they came close to the city of Mecca, the Quraysh became notified that they were approaching, that they were coming. And initially while there was a little bit of some apprehension on their part, but the Prophet sent the word ahead that this is something you contractually agreed to, and you, you will clear the way and allow for this to happen. And they once again sent a reminder saying that, but remember the terms you agreed to. You have three days, sheath, holster, put away your weapons, and you can come and you can perform the Umrah. At the same time, they also said, do not forget the other terms of the agreements. If somebody from Mecca tries to leave and go with you to Medina, you cannot take them with you. If a Meccan tries to escape to Medina with you, that will, that will be a violation of the agreement. You agree to, that person will be returned back to us. And the Prophet ﷺ said, of course, I'm a person of my word, Uqud. right? The Qur'an commands us, fulfill your contracts and your promises. in kana masula, right? This is something you'll be asked about. So the Prophet ﷺ said, no worries and concerns there, we will keep our word, you just keep your end of the, end of the bargain. And so they proceed on, and the narration mentions that Abdullah bin Rawaha Abdullah bin Nawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, um, and uh, the narration mentions very beautifully that the Sahaba were all entering into the city of Mecca, reciting the Talbiyah, saying the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, was Sahaba to Yulabboon, that they were all saying the Talbiya, Labbek Allahumma Labbek, Labbek Allah Sharika Laka Labbek, and they were entering into Makkah, And Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu was holding the, um, the, the 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 reins of the camel of the Prophet, Al Qaswa. The camel of the Prophet وسلم, that was named by the Prophet, Al Qaswa. Uh, Abdullah ibn Rawaha was holding the reins and bringing the animal in. Walking, and he was saying the following words as they were entering in. And some have attributed that this actually occurred during Fajh Makkah, but there are an abundance of narrations which also attributed to this umrah, follow-up umrah of the Prophet. Wallahu ta'ala Allah knows best which exact it was, but he was saying, that he was saying that, O oh, disbelievers, remove yourselves from the path of the Messenger wasallam. Today, we will show you the, the meaning of our religion and our deen, just as we have shown you the Qur'an and the revelation of the Qur'an. So it was just kind of a way to assert right, the self-esteem and the dignity of the Muslims as they entered in so that they would not feel intimidated because the narrations mentioned as the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba were entering in all the Quraysh, all the Meccans everybody was lining the streets they were along the streets they were on top of the homes it was just like an entire crowd that was lined up on both sides you know you kind of get the image in your head of maybe like a procession or a parade but in a parade those people are lined up they're celebrating, they're cheering you on in a in a in a procession of maybe they're standing along the sides like a funeral and they're mourning and they're praying but in this particular instance they were standing along the sides and they were staring them down and the narration mentions kanu yanduruna wa unfan wa 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 adawatan they were staring at them with this angry mean hateful look in their eyes and so it can be very intimidating to be walking in and amongst them. And you're in a state of ihram, so you're in this sacred state where you have to stay focused on the praise and the glorification and the worship of Allah. So he was kind of raising the himmah, the the morale, the self-esteem of the Muslims by saying, no, 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 we are with the messenger of God here to realize the prophecy of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't be intimidated by this. And they enter in, (coughs) and they go to perform the Umrah. Now when they go to perform the Umrah, the Umratul al is particularly remembered for a couple of very specific things. And a couple of specific things that eventually became a part of the actual practice of Umrah, and even Hajj, became institutionalized, if you will, became a part of the fiqh of it. Alright? When they arrived there, <clears throat> some of the uh, Mushrikun, some of the people of Makkah, and this is narrated in the Sahih Bukhari by Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu taala anhuma that they started to say, "Inna hu yadhumu Wafdun humma yathrib." That this group is coming to you, this group is about to visit, and the illness, the disease, the virus of Yathrib. Yathrib was the old name of Medina. Yathrib was the old name, Medina, and even the name had a negative connotation. And I talked about this very early, you know, quite a while back um, in the Sirah here, when we talked about the migration, the Hijrah from Mecca to Medina, that Yathrib, or pre-Medina, if you want to call it that, was known for a couple of things. It was obviously a farming town, and it was and had been um, a resource, a major resource for the Makkans when it came to dates and food supply. So they used to, you know, do business with them. But another thing that it was kind of known for was a little notorious or nefarious, right? It, It was more infamous than famous. And that was that it was known for people getting sick when they visited there. And they would say that either the water smelled bad or tasted bad and the water made you sick, those types of things. And it wasn't maybe necessarily that even it was the fact that the water made you sick or whatever. Maybe it just had a different, you know, uh, mineral count or it had a different type of consistency that would take you a while to adapt to. And so nevertheless, there's even in Jahili poetry, in pre-Islamic poetry, there's this one man who kind of poet who travels around Arabia to the different places, and he writes poetry about all the different tribes and places that he visits. And when he talks about Yathrib, he says that I did not even enter into the town of Yathrib. I came near, I stood far away because I didn't want to get close and get sick from Yathrib. And he talks bad about Yathrib, right? So that was somehow, uh, that was a bit how it was like, more infamous. <clears throat> when the Prophet arrived there, and it's very possible that maybe there was something in the water that was making people ill or sick, but part of the miracle of the Prophet was, when they arrived in Yathrib and the Sahaba started to get sick, and you can have either explanation, maybe there was something in the water, or again, it just was taking them time to adjust to the water and the, 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 the air and the, you know, the food in Yathrib. But nevertheless, the Sahaba were getting sick. And they came to the Prophet ﷺ that we're all getting sick here in Yathrib. And the Prophet ﷺ made dua. He prayed. And he asked Allah ﷻ to remove the illness of Yathrib. And from that point on forward, it was gone. Alright, so that was part of the miracle of the dua of the Prophet ﷺ. And also it's remembered as a miracle of the city of Medina. Alright, so nevertheless... Because those old stories were still there about Yathrib and it was no longer Yathrib, now it was Medina. Al-Madinatul Nabawiyah. Right? Medinatul Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It was the city of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So the name was now Medina. Nevertheless, because those old stories were there, they started spreading these rumors saying this group is coming and the disease of Yathrib has weakened them, has made them frail, has broken them. And they were starting to spread this type of, you know, uh, just gossip and talk about them so that when they would come, they you know, people would be taunting them and saying things, and they were just creating that 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 very you know problematic element and culture and environment so that the the Muslims would not be comfortable in Mecca. The Prophet received news of this. He received news of this. So the Prophet implemented a solution. He implemented a solution, and the solution was threefold. There are three things that are mentioned. Number one, the Prophet ﷺ instructed the Sahaba that as you approach the tawaf of Umrah, then what you do is the ihram, how it's normally worn. Now, I don't want to get into a detailed, you know, session on the fiqh of uh, ihram or hajj or umrah, but just real quickly, if you can kind of stay with me and kind of visualize it, everyone has either either somebody has done umrah or at the very least or, or been in ihram or they've at least seen what ihram looks like. So for the men, there is a specific, um, there's there's some specific rules and regulations in terms of what to wear. And the men wear a lower garment that's tied around. All right. And then how you would kind of wrap a towel maybe around your waist. So there's a lower garment and then there's an upper garment. Now, typically, normally the way the upper garment should be worn is it's kind of worn like a shawl. It's worn over your shoulders. All right. Like you would wrap a shawl around yourself. But the Prophet said, when you come and you're getting ready to perform the tawaf of your umrah, then what you do is, you uncover your right shoulder, you uncover your right shoulder, and you bring the ihram from beneath your right arm, from your armpit here, and you can just kind of fling it over your shoulder. So what that does is it creates that, where the left shoulder is covered, the chest is covered, the back is covered, but the right shoulder and the right arm is now outside, it's exposed. And obviously, even if you just picture it in your head and you get the visual, that's kind of a, it gives like a warrior type look to a person, right? Where you got the arm exposed, right? So it gives that warrior type look to a person. So that was one thing. Because the Prophet said, we need to look strong. The second thing the Prophet instructed them to do was, tawaf, which, which is one singular act of worship it is a one, it is one act of worship like two rak'ahs think about how the different components in salat al-isha let's say salat al-isha for example it's four units four rak'ahs it's got four rak'ahs in it and each rak'ah has a qiyam has a ruku has two sajdas. has so many different components okay but all of it together is one singular act of worship everybody understand that okay similarly tawaf has a few components Tawaf is you circle around the Kaaba counterclockwise seven times. You make seven circles, seven circuits. And then you go and you pray two rak'ahs. Okay? All of that together, even though it's seven circuits and two rak'ahs, all of it together is considered one tawaf. All of that is called one tawaf. A lot of times people have a misconception about that. Right? Seven circles and two rak'ahs is called tawaf. All right? So the Prophet ﷺ said, when you go to perform tawaf, the first three of the seven circuits, when you do them, do not just simply walk. Don't run, but don't walk. What he instructed them to do was somewhat march. Stick your chest out, put your shoulders back a little, and kind of lift your legs up a little bit more, and kind of march. And again, obviously, because of the rush and the crowd there, you can imagine, you can't really move really fast, there's a crowd. But nevertheless, just a little bit kind of asserting yourself, maybe moving your arms a little bit more, if that's all it takes. But he says, stick your chest out, put your shoulders back, get your arms up, lift your legs up a little bit, and march. In the first three circuits, look like soldiers, look like warriors, look strong. And then in the next, the last four, after doing that in the first three, the next four can be done in a more normal state. Where now you can relax, you can walk. Particularly if you think about the act of tawaf, the the, umrah hajj, the act of worship, you're at the Kaaba. And anyone who's been, and even those who haven't been can also imagine, how humbled you must feel there. To be there. At the most sacred place on earth. The most majestic place on earth. To be in, you're 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 in such awe, and you're so humbled and overwhelmed spiritually, emotionally, even physically to just be there. And naturally, you're humbled before Allah, so your instinct is to kind of lower and bow your head, and humble yourself in front of Allah. Right, and and make du'a and ask Allah for forgiveness. And cry and make du'a. Those are very humble things, and it's beautiful. Humility is not—it's—it's it's not embarrassing. It's not disgraceful. It's not humiliating. Right? The Prophet ﷺ was the strongest man, the strongest human being that ever lived. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he would pray at night in front of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, he would cry and cry and cry so much that his beard would become soaked, even his chest would become wet with his tears. Right? You're standing in front of Allah. The Prophet described Jibreel ﷺ, right? In the Hadith of Bukhari. He's as t- so tall, so huge, that his feet are on the ground, his head is in the clouds. He, when, he, when he opened up two wings, he covered the entire horizon from the east to the west. You couldn't see anything. And he had 600 of such wings. He moves at the speed of light. On the night of Al-Isra Al miraj the Burak was moving at the speed of light, and the Prophet ﷺ said, Jibreel was next to me the whole time. Think about how powerful Jibreel ﷺ is. But the Prophet ﷺ said that when we reached the point of Sidratul Muntaha where Jibreel stopped, the Prophet ﷺ said, Jibreel was so humbled in front of Allah, he was like a torn, tattered piece of cloth. It's like he fell apart in front of Allah. Because of the majesty and the greatness of our Lord. So humility is a beautiful thing. So the Prophet understood this is an extremely intimate, personal, vulnerable, humble moment. But he said that you make this display of strength, how your religion has empowered you, your faith in Allah has empowered you. In the first three circuits, in the next four, then you can return back to your humility because the point is made. And then the third thing that some Ibn Abbas in a narration also mentions is, and there's other asbab for this, there's other causes or reasons for this that the Prophet mentioned as well, but nevertheless, Ibn Abbas mentions this uh, being one of the reasons for it as well, that when you do sa'i, when you walk between safa and marwa, Right? When you walk between Safa and Marwa, then there's that little point in the middle in between, closer to Safa, Al-Milain Right? Where you basically kind of speed up and once again just kind of jog or kind of march a little bit more. Alright? A little bit more of a brisk pace. And again, that was something the Prophet instructed the Sahaba to do. And part of the benefit was again, it shows the strength and the conviction that you have in your faith, in your belief, in your religion. So this was this is something very notable out of Umratul qada that what we know today as something we do in Umrah, especially for the men who are who are wearing those garments, that and by the way, this instruction was for the men only, not for the women folk, but it was only for the men. So now, as brothers probably can notice, when we get there we uncover the right arm the right shoulder and we kind of in the first three circuits do a little bit of this when you're instructed to do that now you know exactly why it happened at that time because once again at the Kaaba at the Haram they had basically surrounded the area just stacked up with like a huge crowd like a spectator crowd just watching an audience watching but they weren't watching in awe they weren't watching in curiosity they weren't watching in celebration they were watching in anger kind of staring them down And they had already spread the rumor that watch them, watch them, they're going to look all weak and frail and broken. And then when they did this, it kind of silenced all the critics, it silenced them. The only question that then follows, and this is something very beautiful, is that, um, so some entertained the idea, and I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit, that the Prophet did this to kind of make a, a, a show, a display of that strength, because of the, um, you know, the, 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 the people of Mecca and the way that they were criticizing the Muslims and talking about the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ. So, was that only relevant because the enemy was there and they were watching over them? Or, we obviously do it till today, but what's the explanation of doing it till today? So, there is a narration where Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he basically talked about this. He was asked about this during his khilafah. And he said, Feemar um, Ramlanu, he says that even though we used to do the Ramal, kind of the marching, at the time of the Prophet to show the strength of Islam, waqada atta Allahu al Islama. Like somebody asked him, why are we still doing Ramal when Allah has now strengthened Islam? We don't got to show nobody nothing now. Why are we still doing that amal? Somebody asked Umar رضي الله تعالى عنه, during his khilafa, And he said, لَا نَتْرُكُ شيء رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ He said, yes, you're right. The Prophet some taught us to do it when we needed to show the enemies that we were strong. Now we don't have to show anyone anything there at the Kaaba." But we will not leave something that was done by the Prophet He did it, and that's the overwhelming dominant position of the scholars, that madat is sunnah as Ibn Abbas and others suggested that, basically the sunnah has been established, and that is what we practice till today. Now, continuing on kind of just the narration of you know the umrah that they were performing, um, so as I mentioned, the mushrikun had all kind of gathered around there um, and were watching over them. The in the hadith of Bukhari, the Sahaba mentioned: "Lama iatmara Rasulullahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam?" When the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam performed the Umrah, saturnahu min Ghilman al-mushrikina wa minhum and yudur Rasulullahi sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When we went there to perform Umrah, because the whole crowd was gathered around to try to like you know intimidate. And we were afraid that they might try to say something or somebody might, you know, some young person might try to get out of line and try to, وَالْعَيَذُ billah, God forbid, maybe potentially harm the Prophet wasallam. So they said what we did was, we basically circled around the Prophet wasallam so that nobody could directly reach him and we kind of covered the Prophet we got around him to shield him, just in case somebody was going to get out of line. And this is mentioned in Bukhari. So it shows how cautious and careful and how diligent the Sahaba were about the Prophet Another thing that's mentioned in the narration is, the Prophet when he came for this Umratul qada he himself was riding his camel, Qaswa, the she-camel, Naqa. When they went to go do tawaf, the Prophet Wasallam he himself, he did tawaf on the back of the she camel He himself did tawaf on the back of the camel <clears throat> Because of the advanced age of the Prophet ﷺ At this particular point The Prophet ﷺ was nearly 60 years old They had traveled from Medina to Mecca So the Prophet ﷺ did tawaf on the back of the camel That's why we see today It's okay and it's permissible if somebody's not able to That they can do tawaf in a wheelchair right? That's why it's okay so the Prophet did tawaf on the back of the camel, and when they got to the point of al-Hajjul Aswad, the Prophet ﷺ was holding in his hand uh, like a walking stick, and the Prophet reached out from the back of the camel and touched al-Hajjul Aswad, the black stone, with the walking stick that he had. The Prophet is proven and established, as we'll see in the future, in the future visits of the Prophet he is proven and established to do the tawaf on foot as well, kissing the black stone physically as well. But in this particular trip, when they got there for the Umrah itself, that very first umrah that tawaf you do for the Umrah, the Prophet did it on the back of the camel, um, and he touched the Al Hajjul Aswad with you know the staff that he was holding. Hisham basically mentions illatin that it was not that the Prophet was like sick or ill, but nevertheless what probably contributed to this was two things. He maybe felt exhausted and fatigued from the journey itself, nearly being 60 years old. And secondly, secondly, was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi out of his mercy? And this is part of the prophetic, uh, you know, this is part of the prophetic responsibility, if you will, part of the prophetic mission. He would also do these types of things to demonstrate its permissibility, li bayan al jawaz, to demonstrate it is permissible so that. From that point on forward until the end of time, whenever anyone would go to perform hajj or umrah and is physically not feeling capable of doing the tawaf, they can find comfort and solace in the fact that they could do a tawaf on the back of a camel or in our case in a wheelchair if the situation arises. So this is the part of the mercy of the Prophet ﷺ, رحمة alamin, that he demonstrated that even such a person could end up doing their tawaf. And in this manner the Prophet ﷺ and the sahaba radiAllahu they performed their umrah, they completed uh, their umrah and um, they remained there in the, the city of Mecca for a total of three days. And at this particular point in time we'll be talking about two things. Number one was the Prophet ﷺ's marriage to the mother of the believers Maymunah Maymuna bint al-Harith رضي الله Anha, right, One of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and a mother of the believers, Maymuna رضي الله عنها. The Prophet ﷺ was married to her at this occasion And secondly, we'll also talk about the departure from the city of Mecca and some of the things that transpired There were a couple of very interesting things uh, There was a little bit of tension as the Muslims were leaving the city of Mecca back to Medina. There was a little bit of tension, a little moment of tension there between the Meccans and the Muslims. And secondly, there was also a very um, there was also a very serious case about the custody of the daughter of Hamza radiallahu taala anha. The daughter of Hamza radiallahu taala anha who was orphaned Who had lost her father Hamza, radiallahu ta'ala anhu? There was a case of her daughter who was in Makkah at that time, that what's going to be done with her and her custody in her situation. So, inshallah, these three things the marriage of the Prophet to Maymuna, the departure from Makkah, and the tension that arose, and thirdly, the custody. Of the daughter of Hamza radiallahu taala anhu, uh, we'll talk about all of those three things, inshallah. In the following session, we'll go ahead and conclude here. May Allah subhanahu wa taala give us the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Subhanallah, wa bihamdihi, Subhanakallah, bihamdik. Nashhadu Allahu ilaha illa Anta. Nastaqfiruka wa natabiilake.